Well, good afternoon. Welcome. Thank you very much for coming. Um, we're here for a relatively informal lunchtime discussion uh, based around this book, The Incarnate Lord, by um, our visitor, Father White. Um, and the title we're using for the discussion is uh, Challenging the Consensus in Modern Christology. I thought I'd just kick it off by reading... By the way, I should say this is an immensely stimulating book. Um, so if you haven't read it and you have a spare ten minutes, then I recommend reading it. It's, it's really extraordinarily stimulating. Um, I thought I'd kick it off just by reading one of the paragraphs from the conclusion, which is aptly titled The Promise of Thomism. Uh, and the, the paragraph draws together some of the threads in the book, so I just thought it might be good to have it before us. Um, and I'll let uh, Father White take the discussion away. So the paragraph I have in mind, if anyone's got the book in front of them, um, begins at the bottom of page 468. The concluding thesis of this, of this book is the following. The study of Christology is not first and foremost historical, even if it habitually makes use of detailed historical knowledge and argumentation. Rather, the study of theology in general, and Christology in particular, is structural or essential. Christology studies the structure of a mystery, the mystery of the incarnation, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ, his grace and its effects, and the eschatological hope arising from his person and activity. Is this itself not a historical mystery? Of course. But it is, above all, a mystery by which one interprets the meaning of history in light of what unifies and transcends historical existence. Christology, in other words, is meant to communicate to us the identity of God, the author of our history, and the identity of what it means to be human, not only within time, but also in view of eternal life. Outside of this scientific norm, Christology as a true theological science ceases to be. Similarly, Wherever true Christological claims are made within historical studies, this science is implicitly present. So it's a lovely weaving together of a very, very strong, broadly metaphysical claim about the nature of Christology as a discipline and about the content of Christology with the presence, implicitly, of metaphysical claims within all historical investigations. And it, it weaves together two of the central threads in the work as a whole. So I just think it's lovely and worth keeping in mind. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Griffiths. I am only going to say a few things about this book for maybe not more than 10 minutes and then open the floor to conversation. Uh, and if I am not presuming in the conversation that everyone here has read a book, certainly not all of it or any, even a part of it. Uh, you know, these kinds of formats allow you to in engage with an author or thinker independently of whether you've yet read something in the book. And you may decide based on the conversation, it's worth reading some of it, all of it, or none of it. And uh, that's one of the reasons we do these things. So first of all, I'd just like to say uh, it's good to have German friends. And the origin of this book was a conversation in the airport of the Denver following a Nova et Vedra uh, event on the theology of Matthias Schieben, maybe five or six years ago, 
with a, a certain obscure theology professor named Reinhard Hüter, who, uh, who sat there with me in the, in the uh, waiting section of the airport, sketching out with the, the penetrating Teutonic mind how one could assemble together a set of chapters to create a coherent expression of Thomistic Christology. And he got the ball rolling in my imagination. And uh, I think something in me answered with diligent kind of receptivity because I went back and made an outline and started to work on it. Now, some of this book was created from pre-existent articles, but what happened in the peer review process, and this is the, also the, the grace of Catholic University of America Press, they have such a tenacious peer review process that they, they really gr grill the book to make sure there's a thematic unity. And so I had wonderful help rewriting the book and unifying it and integrating it. So I was trying to do that myself already and then got a lot of help, especially from Michael Gorman and Guy Mancini, which are wonderful, wonderful peer reviewers. Um, the basic theme of the book is about the significance of metaphysics or ontology for right understanding of the mystery of God, the human person, and Christ as a God who is a human person. Uh, this is not a very original approach from a Dominican although it is perhaps something of a novelty to find this kind of approach articulated at this particular juncture in Catholic theology, including in the Dominican order. Some people make the mistake of thinking that throughout the Dominican order, everyone is simply always working assiduously at detailed commentary on Thomas Aquinas. This is just not true. There's an immense um, internal diversity and even sometimes argument conversation about the sort of future of theology, the contemporary settings of theology in the order. And there are those who will feel that St. Thomas should have a very central place. There are those who feel he ought to be one voice among others. And there are those who think he's a noble, brilliant, magistral thought experiment from another era and that we have a different challenge our own time. So the attempt here is to say, really, in the opening chapter that uh, I say, you know, ignorance of ontology is ignorance of Christ, obviously, echoing Jerome, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ, and saying that, in a way, the New Testament itself leads us into rich fields of ontological inquiry about the nature of God, the nature of Christ, uh, the mystery of what it is to be a human being, for Christ to be human, how the salvific death of Christ has a universal significance. And uh, I use a fair amount of not only classical uh, Christology of the councils, but also contemporary evangelical and um, Protestant, uh, I think excellent uh, biblical analysis, New Testament theology to try to show how, in fact, these questions are not far below the surface of some of the best contemporary um, New Testament study. So there's a little bit of an ecumenical opening there. Um, well, I see more than a little. There's a prolegomena that is a kind of a summoning of summoning the themes to the surface, but not really a resolution and introduction of where I think a lot of the, the questions lie about how to, to think about Christology in a modern context and why Thomism might have something to contribute, which is after all not an obvious uh, presupposition. A, a crux chapter, I think, if you're going to think about a lean reading of the book, a crux chapter is the first chapter, the ontology of the hypostatic union, because there really what I do is uh, develop in a far more 
profound way what I was enunciating here in the first part of the lecture last night, which is the idea that Aquinas' treatment of the hypostatic union of is, is of profound acuity. Uh, it's insightful for all of Christian thought, but it's of profound acuity in the contemporary discussions about religious pluralism and multiple uh, sociological mediating figures, and that he gives you tools by which to analyze kind of options that arise in the wake of Schleiermacher, um, and we could say now John Hick, that are extremely significant options about how to identify the uniqueness of Christ, that Aquinas is really, really helpful in this conversation. I take on directly some of Rahner's um, intriguing and really uh, challenging criticisms of classical scholastic Christology. I mean, Rahner has a series of really challenging um, questions to traditional scholastic Christology, I do not believe that his criticisms are, in the end, determinant, but they were very effective. If you try to find who is the thinker in Catholic think thought who kind of displaced Christology that was done up into the 1950s in a more scholastic mode, you know, turning it toward what we might call high Christology done through the medium of Christology from below, you know, a more biblical uh, treatment of the humanity of Christ in historical context as the prelude trying to articulate the background for the New Testament and the creeds. It's Rahner, I mean, who has the sort of is a central pillar figure. And so, like, looking at that, revisiting that decision as, as articulated very forcefully by him and trying to figure out why that might not have been the right decision. I mean, that, that's a, obviously a very controversial uh, set of issues, and I think it's a crux determinant point. You know, and I just have, I was trained in modern Christology. I wasn't, like, I didn't... In the crib, they didn't have a little sign over me that says Dominican Thomist. I was, um, I mean, besides being a convert to Catholicism, I was really trained in modern theology um, in Bart and Rahner and Balthazar and moved to Aquinas gradually, not immediately, and through a long, and, you know, I'm not saying I've figured out what I believe forever, but it just, to me, these are real questions. This is not a, these are not straw man um, issues. There's a long conversation after that with Karl Barth that runs really through a series. It runs, it's maybe the primary interlocutor of the book. This is not because I don't take Barth's thought most seriously, but just because I'm sort of still trying to figure out as I go why I'm more a disciple of Aquinas than a disciple of Karl Barth. And if, you're, if that's a question that animates you for you know, some decades of your life, you're, I think, in, engaging with a real theology. These are both great theologians and wonderful interlocutors. Um, then the second, you know, the second half of the book is really, in a certain way, the gravamen, like where things really start to unfold. After having treated the hypostatic union and the questions of grace and nature in Christ and the analogy, ontological analogy between the two natures and the question of whether Christology presupposes a certain kind of metaphysics and natural theology and Jesus' human knowledge, um, then the real second half is to look at the mysteries of the redemption and what do they, if, if you try to approach them kind of in a more metaphysical light, which I don't take to be a non-biblical one, but of course the deepest biblical kind of insights are the ones where you're trying to go into the kind of essence of the mystery, its very being. How does the redemption of Christ as it unfolds reveal to us who God is and the nature of our salvation? Um, 
And so there's some uh, you know, real uh, engagement here, I, I hope, with canonic, modern canonic, variants of modern canonic thought. Uh, Bart has his own version of canonicism. There's some engagement here with Pannenberg, Bulgakov, um, and then really Balthazar. There's, you know, the longest chapter is the chapter on the descent into hell. So after looking at some of the co comparisons of Balthazar and Aquinas on Christ's death, and the separation of body and soul in the mystery of, of the, the death of the Lord. There's a long treatment of the mystery of um, the descent into hell, the way that Balthazar treats that, what his motives are, what's going on, as best I can understand some of the main motives. Um, I come to a very surprising conclusion, uh, which I hope will be engaged a little bit by the communio uh, community which is that I don't actually think there is a doctrine of the descent of Christ into hell in Balthazar, as where I do think there's one in Aquinas that's very rich and detailed. And this is in part because I think Balthazar has so redefined the nature of death and the nature of damnation and the nature of hell in light of his own peculiar Christological themes uh, that he's done away with anything like a traditional understanding of the separation of body and soul. Because Balthazar seems to me, with Rahner, in fact he says so really quite explicitly in the Theodrama 5, Balthazar does not seem to want to commit to the idea that there is a spiritual soul that is separate from the body after death, which means that the, the separation of the body and soul in Christ, in which the soul in, of Christ in some way illumines or affects the souls of the faithful departed who have died prior to the time of Christ, is not something he wants to engage as a kind of reality, and I think wants to find in that field of images from the tradition more kind of poetic uh, armament from which to rethink Jesus' own suffering in the cross unto annihilation as a way of rethinking God's, uh, the kind of extent of God's love in the incarnation, descending into the hell or night of human death and alienation from God. Uh, so in the end, I kind of think that Balthazar is closer to Bart and Calvin in pushing the descent of hell from Holy Saturday back onto the event of Good Friday. And I may be wrong about this. It's a vastly complicated, textually complicated question. But I came to a surprising conclusion. I expected to find something very different. Uh, the, the chapter on the resurrection it goes in the face of a lot of modern German uh, theology in insisting on the importance of the spiritual soul subsisting after death. I go there with Joseph Ratzinger in his es famous eschatology book over against uh, other, other choices, including notably, notably uh, Karl Rahner's treatment of the question in his famous essay, The Intermediate State, which has had massive effect on modern German theology. And then look at the treatment of the resurrection of the body in Aquinas in a, in a way that I think is the body of Christ the resurrection of the body of Christ in a way that's deeply aligned with Cyril of Alexandria's understanding of the humanity of Christ as the instrument of his person. How is the glorified body of Christ the instrument of, of uh, Christ's person or of the word in communicating the mystery of Christ to the world? So it, it sort of ends on the note of like the, the way that Christ in the resurrection is alive and affecting all of humanity. And then the, 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 um, the conclusion is a kind of engagement with Schillebecks. Now that's obviously a conversation in some way internal to the Dominican order about the question of whether a more hermeneutical, historical, I think you could say 
in Schilbeck's own thinking, post-Heideggerian, post-Gadamerian, post-Bultmannian theology has to always be a historically situated theology that has grave hesitations about making universal claims for all times and all places, right? So you get in the Dominican, in the movement of Dominican theology, going from the more Thomistic formulations to the more Schilbeckian idea of a, a, a always historically contextually situated theology, you know, a real um, lessening of ambitions or a different kind of ambition. Schilbeck is a much more political thinker and um, creates a kind of theology of contexts and a kind of, of political contexts. And I'm sort of challenging that, which I would not say is a consensus by any means today. I think Schilbeck has fewer followers than he used to. But I'm trying to sort of suggest in, exactly in the way that uh, Professor Griffiths, I mean, he put his finger right on the kind of key idea at the end. I'm kind of I'm trying to suggest that the, that the, the notion in Aquinas of sacra doctrina still rings very true. That's just the first question in the Summa Theologiae. What's the proper object of, of theology as a science? If we call it in some way, analogically speaking, a science in the Aristotelian sense, but you know, not naively. Aquinas knows it's not an Aristotelian science in the strict sense. It's, it's mysterious, it's different, but it's something like a human um, intellectual discipline of another kind. What's the object of the science? God, the Holy Trinity, and all things understood in light of God. And so understanding Christ as God made human in, has uh, a kind of horizon of, of universality because it points us toward our engagement with the most universal truth, the most all-encompassing truth of reality, which is the truth of the Holy Trinity. So it's a Trinitarian, uh, it's an ambition to have a Trinitarian, you might say, reading of reality that's ontological and metaphysical, uh, moral, obviously also moral. So I'm, I'm trying to take it back at the end to the first question of the Summa and show why I think that that project is absolutely vi viable in our own time in deep engagement with these modern Christological thinkers. If you want to talk about people that are influencing me in the background, you might just say it's, it's, I mean, there's obviously some influence here of Alistair McIntyre, but not in the domain of philosophy and taking Aquinas and engaging contemporary philosophy, but taking principles from Aquinas and engaging contemporary theology. Well, you know, Dominicans never speak for the length of time they promise, and I have broken <laughs> proving the charism of the order is well and alive, but I will now cease and desist and open the floor to uh, questions. Professor Hawass. When um, Paul read that paragraph, I, I think that's a question. <laughs> Uh, immediately came to me, uh, given my education. What do you make of histor historicity of resurrection? Well, okay, so the question is, what do I make of the historicity of the resurrection, which is a wonderful, acute, uh, direct question. I love what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, the 1994 Catechism of the Catholic Church, in a passage written by a Dominican theologian. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a historical and transcendent mystery. And this means there's no dialectic between the aspect of the historicity and the transcendence of the event, but that they have to be also correlated critically in relation to one another. So, is it a truth of history that Christ rose from the dead? Yes. Is there a way of analyzing this? Then you get interesting subjacent questions to that. One would be a kind of a question of... Um, what would be could be called loosely apologetics, but you could call it in terms of um, 
uh, 19th century Catholic terms, reasons of credibility. Is there a kind of rational historical purchase on the historicity of the resurrection? And I'm thinking here, of course, this is something like N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, which is a very impressive attempt to show that Christianity is best explained, or at least as well explained, uh, by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as a physical reality, as a, as a fact of history, as, as anything else would be. It's as useful as an explanation as anything else we can come up with. I would call that a broadly apologetic, although interestingly theological approach. Uh, I do think that that's feasible, but of course, to give a strong apologetic defense of the historicity of the resurrection is not to, con uh, to convey the faith, and it's usually an intellectual project taken on by someone who already has the faith, defending apologetically the internal rationality of the faith. Another question, though, that comes up with there is, the, is can, should we start with Pannenberg? And, in fact, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, in his book uh, in English, uh, Principles of Catholic Theology, has an essay start saying all theology has to start from belief in the resurrection. As, uh, you know, so then there's another sort of higher kind of claim is, does theology take its point of departure from the incarnation? Uh, Christology. Does Christology begin from the Incarnation? Does it begin from the Resurrection? Um, and I think that that's a very hard question. You know, I tend to think actually theology takes its starting point from the Holy Trinity, which we know about when we know about Christ as the person of the Son. When we discover Christ as a person, we know some way that we have a problem about how he's related to the Father and the Holy Spirit. So we're already in a numinous, the faith, the supernatural grace of faith, puts us in a numinous, immediate relationship to the Son, who is related to the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so we immediately, are in some way, are in contact with the numinous mystery we call, conceptually, the Trinity. And that that mystery is made known implicitly from the beginning of the apostolic witness, from the time the apostles themselves, un it's unveiled to the apostles, and then they unveil it to the world through their preaching, as the mystery of Christ raised from the dead, who is the Son. You know, so I think in some ways, the revela in time, the revelation of the resurrection and the revelation of the, the sonship of Jesus and his unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit are co-simultaneous. But then if you think about a scientific order, I do think it makes sense with Aquinas to say that the mystery is understood most fundamentally in light of what's ultimate, which is the mystery of God's own imminent life, which has been unveiled to us in and through the incarnation and resurrection of the Son. So this is a hard and interesting question. In some ways, maybe it doesn't really have to be resolved in an absolutely clear and distinct way. There is a way in which you could say there's a fundamental difference between those who approach Christ as believing in the resurrection and those who don't. Now, the aspect of the transcendent event um, is that this is not a historical fact like other historical facts. So it would be an, a banalization, a rationalization, and an epistemological naivete on our part, to say that we were treating the historicity of the resurrection as a mere kind of event among other events, even like the miracles of Jesus, or the resuscitations that are ascribed to Christ and to some of the saints through time and history, which I believe in, or at least some of them. Um, because the resurrection is, has a cosmic significance. And that's where, the, the, actually, my insistence on the kind of metaphysical aspect is significant, I think, is that God is remaking creation. In some way, Pannenberg's right to say, the end of the world has come in the resurrection, and, and the, the end times has been unveiled. The future of humanity and of creation has been 
unveiled before us, disclosed to us in Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so it's a transcendent event of the Creator making clear in Christ who He is as Creator, not only as He who can save us, but He who can remake the world and glorify us, who can be finally victorious over uh, every shadow of sin, uh, death, and uh, the revolt of evil. You know, so there's this kind of victory of God revealed in the resurrection of Christ, of God as creator, savior, and glorifier of his creation. And that's a kind of transcendent, magnificent mystery uh, that isn't reducible to a historical, uh, kind of, you know, more empirical event like an empty tomb or even a resurrection apparition. And you can only touch that in the faith. You can't really, you know have a charismatic experience of a miracle of, of the resurrected body of Christ that would be adequate to that truth. I always say every generation of seminarians develops their own Viking. When I was going through seminary, um, um, the humor was John the 23rd had an archaeological expedition over the Holy Land. Have you heard it? Yes. Uh, uh, but Dominican can't tell this joke, at least the way that I, I that the way I heard it, I can't tell this joke. This really? And that Yes, I mean, uh, Boltmann had an immense effect in uh, the American seminary uh, in, the, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, and I think that, that yeah, yeah. Could not reach the Father. Yeah. Well, I so you know, in some ways, I, I found Balthazar's theology of the un, of the kind of solidarity with us through the descent of Christ into the night of our own alienation or separation from God or lostness, you might call it. Uh, very appealing when I was first investigating theology and I was, you know, read a lot of Balthasar and very, continued to read, actually, this week I've been reading intensively the Theologic too, and, and including on this issue. So uh, it's a question that remains very important to me to think about the reality of Christ's descent into our human suffering and to not minimalize that. But what's become more apparent to me over time is also that 
part of the remedy of our human situation or the promise of salvation given in Christ is that Christ supports the happiness of beatitude, the promise of deliverance from the wandering in darkness and from the, the maze of confusion of our lives. You know, so to me the cross is not just solidarity. I mean, this is an obvious point. The cross is not just solidarity. It's also remedy. And uh, over time I've begun to believe that the the theology of the victory of the love of Christ on the cross requires that Christ have some kind of luminous awareness of the of the victory of the Father's love in the crucifixion. Catherine of Siena says that Christ experienced the greatest joy in his passion, even amidst the most intensive suffering, because he was giving his life in the freedom of charity on our behalf and in union with the Father. And that that victory of the joy of God and the joy of charity is a kind of offering to the Christian people, to the church, to participate in the liberating power of the grace of Christ. So I guess where I'm at now is I want to have both those things, but in some kind of um, measured way. I find the treatment of John Paul II helpful, Charles Journet, and Aquinas has something in Tertiary Parts Question 46, I think it's Article 7 and Articles 8, where he puts juxtaposed, I mean it's obviously purposeful, he says, did Christ experience greater suffering in the Passion than any human being has ever experienced? And he says, yes. And he says, because of the plenitude of charity, and he says, he puts it in the side of the will, actually, he says, because Christ can love so much, he can experience more contrition for human sin than any human being has ever experienced. So it's like the kind of agony of love. And then the next article he asks is, did Christ uh, experienced the consolation of the vision of the Father in the Passion. And he says, yes. And he says, the joy was given to him, he calls it in the higher reason, where he has a kind of speculative awareness intuitively of his union with the Father. But he says it does not, in, he says in the Paschal mystery, unlike in the resurrection, it does not affect the lower features of his reason and his psychosomatic com comportment. So, he is not consoled in his psychology, he's not sensate psychology, and in his body, and even in a kind of practical way, his reason engages with the terrible evil that's being done to him, and the sort of, uh, you know, the mockery, the refusal, the abandonment of the disciples, and the acute awareness of the kind of gravity, the darkness of human sinfulness. So you have a kind of sharp contrast in Aquinas between Christ, the, pacific, the pacification of his soul from above, and the intense mourning uh, and dereliction of confrontation with evil in us, in the world, in the refusal of the life of the cross. Uh, and I, I think that that is a healthy balance. I don't want to lose the connection to the Father. I think it would cause problems for soteriology because uh, God's solidarity with us in our experience of evil is not so great, is, is not the kind of solidarity such that God can no longer overcome suffering. And yet he can suffer more than us, not because he lacks something that we also might lack, but because he loves in a way that we don't love as a man. Is that what? Well, I have it. So I have it. I mean, I'm really trying to grapple with that issue, and I do have a chapter in the book on that statement, like trying to, like, how do I grapple with that? And I'm going, I go like the direction I'm, tell, I'm talking about here. Uh, 
And I don't think it's sufficient simply to say that it's a psalm prayer. I do actually think it matters that he's praying a psalm prayer in which the psalm ends in victory. But, I mean, I think it signifies acute agony, but not a state of hopelessness. So I do not want to say that Christ descends into, you might call it, um, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name, um, the historical Jesus. Um, yeah, I don't think he descends into Schweitzer's kind of night of incomprehension, maybe despair, and then God raises him despite that. I think he, the offering uh, might be one in which there's no psychological consolation, since they felt psychological consolation. But I think there's also, you, I mean, you have to balance out the Markan and, and, and Matthean imagery with the, the Joannine imagery and the Lucan imagery. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is accomplished. Even in Mark and Matthew, when he gives his life, there's immediately the renting of the veil, there's the uh, conversion of the centurion. So the divine power is unveiled through Christ's own human exper uh, uh, extinction or human self-offering. So I, I think there's um, something about the divine victory present even in the midst of the cross in Mark and Matthew as well as in, in John and Luke. Yes, sir. This is a related question of Stanley's to follow up. I was fascinated by your treatment of um, <coughs> Jesus' possession of the beatific vision. Yeah. It's something I, something I thought about uh, before reading your work. Uh, I've also been reading, uh, since reading your, your book, because Paul's been reading a lot of Kathy Tanner's mm -hmm. writings on Jesus. Mm -hmm. Something that comes up again and again in her, uh, her treatment of Christology is the if you use this term, but the, the invisibility of Jesus' deity. Mm -hmm. Jesus' deity as, as a sort of underlying condition of his humanity, um, so not something that's, that's empirically present in his you know, in his day-to-day -day life. Um, okay. And so that, that's a, for her, that's a way of, of safeguarding, you know, the sort of proper Chalcedonian interest in Jesus, in the, the unity of Jesus' person. Mm -hmm. Seems that, that that's how it works. Yeah, I um, think I, I'm very. I, I think that it, that claim is very suspect to well, me. So, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, 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 I'm going the other direction. Yeah, I just I, I, the, wanna, I wanna juxtapose yeah. Tanner just with you as a as mm -hmm. a as an interesting point of contrast. So, uh, Tanner doesn't, as far as I can tell, have any interest in the, the concept of the um, the instrumentality of Jesus' humanity, which, which you make great use of. It seems to me that those are that the Jesus' possession of the beatific vision is, is linked up at some deep conceptual level with your, your interest in the, the instrumentality of humanities. Could you just Absolutely. excavate those? Yeah, great. That's a great point. Uh, you put your finger right on some. So, I mean, look, I, I, certainly I think there are a lot of people in the Reformed tradition who have a deep aspiration to maintain a balanced Chalcedonian theology. And on that, I don't think there's a... a there need not be a profound disagreement. But... This is where the, your theology of atonement has a huge uh, effect on your metaphysics, you understand the metaphysics of the incarnation. So, for example, if you think that the atonement is run, and I don't know what uh, Professor Tanner thinks about this, but I do know what someone like Benenberg thinks about it, or for that matter, Bart. If you think that the atonement runs primarily through a kind of maybe a creative retrieval of the penal substitution theory, then Christ's ignorance is not a problem for you because effectively, in some way, to die in the Schweitzerian darkness of um, suffering 
and the, and the cry of dereliction in the midst of faith, in the kind of exhaustion of heroic faith, is a way in which the, the victim can bear in his innocence the mystery of solidarity with us in our darkness and descend into hell as the one who is reprobated on our behalf so that we can be justified by his grace. And you find this already thematically in Calvin. Calvin's very clear, Christ had faith. He's one of the most bold in sort of saying this over and against the medievals who almost unilaterally would not argue this. Uh, and then um, trying to argue that the human sort of self-offering Christ in the dereliction in, unto a kind of experience of damnation and separation from God is a mystery of God's solidarity with us, but also of Christ bearing the weight of penal substitution. Now, you find this thematically in Bart. You find it in, a, in its own way in Balthazar. But look, if you think Anselm is more the answer, then the, 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 the atonement works primarily more through Christ's own self-offering of love and obedience to the Father in our stead. So it's really through Christ's sort of knowing, giving of himself to the Father in obedience and praying for us, bringing us before the Father in the plenitude of charity. In that case, he needs to know the Father. And he, in some way, needs to know who he's dying for. But he also needs to know who's dying for us. That's to say that he needs to know who he is. And, and so in that sense, there's a way in which, for, and it's very clear in Anselm, that he thinks he's extending the Chalcedonian doctrine into, in the Curdeus Omo, reflection, systematic reflection on soteriology. And I'm much more sympathetic to that, allying this, as Aquinas does, with John Damascene and Cyril of Alexandria's theology of the instrumentality of Jesus' the sacred humanity. So it's not just enough that they have the hypostatic union to make of Christ's human mind and heart instruments of the deity. He needs grace. That would be the first place to start. Does he need grace? Aquinas has a beautiful ar argument for why that has to be the case. And, not, and grace is primarily grace of knowledge and grace of the will. And then you get into the kind of details. Does Christ know human, does he have a human awareness of who he is? Okay, if he needs to, to cooperate with the Father. I mean, I don't know how anyone reads the New Testament as having any historicity to it whatsoever about the historical Jesus and denies that Christ has some kind of consciousness of the Father and of his own filial uniqueness and of the Holy Spirit and of his mission to save us. I mean, at some minimal level, however much you think is there's theologumina post-resurrection of the New Testament community, and it might not be as much as we always think there might be, uh, you still need to say there's some kind of fundamental embryonic messianic consciousness of the Christ who's aware of his filial status for the Father. Then you have to get into questions of how does he know what he knows, and how does he will what he wills by grace. And that's where the medievals go. They go to that point and they ask, you know, does his, is his knowledge of the Father immediate or is it mediated? If it's mediated, no matter by how high the prophetic inspiration, like a prophet like Jeremiah or Saul, Paul, Tarsus or whatever, then he's, he's believing what the Father reveals to him. But if he's actually also God, then he's also believing as man what he reveals to himself as God. And then you really have an interesting metaphysical conundrum, if you really get into this, about thinking about what would it mean for God to believe, have a human belief in his own agency in and through his human life. And you can go back and try to work with Calvin to make that work. Uh, and there are Catholic theologians who do it, but the Catholic tradition on the whole has eschewed that for the, in order to safeguard the notion of the 
humanity as, of Christ as the genuine instrument of his person, as a person who is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, who knows what the Father wills, who knows the Father, who knows the Holy Spirit in some kind of mysteriously quasi-immediate way. I'm talking about a human knowledge here. Right? So there are, there are a lot of positions. I take a, a strong traditional one, highly qualified, because I want to allow very much that Christ has a developmental human consciousness just like that of anyone else. I don't think you want to have special pleading about the baby Jesus uh, having a, some kind of oddly precocious mental consciousness. And I also think he needs to know, I mean, the, the grace of Christ seems to be mission-oriented. He knows the things he needs to know for our salvation. And I think it's modally coordinated with his ordinary first century, second temple Judaism context, uh, uh, the, the context of his first century, second t temple Judaism, and the kind of linguistic, cultural linguistic consciousness that that gives rise to. Because I mean, I think, so I think there's a fundamental way in which his consciousness is that of a first century Jew, in which he's aware of something of his unique ontological status and expresses that verbally, linguistically, using the tools of his time. You know, so I do want to do a both and. You know, it's both very historic, historically situated and it's very mi mysterious and numinous and, and in a way tra transcendently open consciousness. But it is important to me, I think, it's important for theology, that Christ have a deep human awareness of his own identity and it matters for soteriology, soteriology in Christ's own self-offering to the Father in charity on our behalf. Uh, so that's the Anselmian aspect. And I've been putting off by talking so long, allowing Paul, Paul Griffiths to attack, to, to push me, so I'm going to now let him do that. I'm pretty sympathetic to most of that. I mean, it does seem right to me that the, the line about the instrumentality and about knowledge is right. That's got to be broadly right over against exclusive penal substitution and all that. But what, what I wonder about is whether you're not equivocating on, on knowledge or self-awareness. In other words, um, if you think about ordinary human existence, yours and mine, we're not Jesus, I think we can safely say. But very often we act um, without having any occurrent awareness of what it is we're doing or why we're doing it. In fact, almost always we do that, it seems to me. That's not to say that we don't have dispositional awareness of that. That's to say under certain circumstances we might not be able to articulate an understanding of who we are. But the idea that, that this is a current in any way just seems a strange one to me. And a current? A, a current, I mean actually occurring at the moment. A current as well. That what is occurring? An understanding of who we are and what we're doing as we act. Yeah. Um, that seems a, an importation, if you do think that, an importation of a theory of understanding or experience of what it is to be human that has nothing at all to do with any of this. In other words, what this is about is who Jesus was, fine, no, no fundamental problems there. What Jesus did, also fine. And what we should say, therefore, about what Jesus knows. But to go the next stage and to say, and that tells us something about what it seemed like to Jesus to be Jesus. Okay, well, no, I, I actually want to avoid, okay, so we had this argument last time I was here, six years ago, which, interestingly, and we were further apart then than we are now. Um, I mean, I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't think that theologians should try to, nor can they, get an account of what it is like psychologically, empirically from within, so to speak, to be the incarnate word, experiencing reality humanly. Uh, and I, this uh, this is not a Schleiermacherian uh, you know attempted at, at reconstructing 
uh, well, first of all, I don't think even Schleiermacher does what I just said. But he, I mean, it's not an attempt to try to reconstruct what it means for Jesus to be God based on the content of his human consciousness, like God consciousness or something like that. Um, on the contrary... The word you just have to stay away from. Sorry? Consciousness. Well, then there's that question uh, that, you know, is consciousness even really a good word? And I do think that it's a dangerous one. Uh, but... Um, and it's used in very vague and, and maybe sometimes overly ambitious and crude ways by some of our friends in the analytic uh, philosophy world, not all of them. I do think, uh, and I say this not to say I'm really trying to emulate him, but I do think that in his book in the 50s or 60s uh, on the incarnate word, uh, Lonergan has a very careful treatment of consciousness in light of Thomistic theory that is... Uh, I think pretty poised. So I don't think that the word, I, I mean, some, usually I use the word self-awareness, but I think self-reflexivity is a part of, you know, Aquinas does use the, the language of consciousness very occasionally. It has some medieval uh, origins, but you know, I'm, very, I'm happy to say his knowledge of himself or his knowledge of whatever particular objects. Um, um, okay, so, but you know, look, I, I'm, Bruce Marshall has a wonderful sort of pithy saying that the project of much of modern Christology is to, is to do something on this problem of Jesus' human historical knowledge in its historical context and the belief in Jesus' divinity like this. Uh, before the resurrection, all hail the modern historical critical method. After the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, all hail the Nicene Creed. And uh, so you, you, you basically, and I think you hear this in Catherine Tanner, at least as you're reporting her, is that uh, it's sort of like, well, let's make Jesus as normal as possible in his human historical setting so that the historical critical project won't be something we have to ever seem to be disavowing. There can be all these you know, arguments about exactly what the shape of his uh, historical consciousness looked like in its you know, original context. And then we'll just keep the resurrection the fact that he suffered and he rose from the dead, and then afterwards we put everything on the kind of illumination of faith. Now, that's a crude caricature, but I think that there's uh, a truth to the caricature that I want to avoid by pushing back and saying, you can have distinctively dogmatic knowledge of, of, of what must be true of Christ prior to the resurrection, based on the New Testament, that can be apologetically defended by a certain kind of historical critical uh, treatment of Jesus, not because we're reconstituting through our own histor uh, historical ingenuity as theologians what it was like to be Jesus, but because the, the revelation of Christ in the New Testament, both as it's portraying him before and after his resurrection, requires that there be some kind of uh, symphony or coordination between his human understanding of the Father and of us and of himself and his divine life, the divine wisdom he shares with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's really the fundamental principle. And then you get the medieval treatment. They don't think that they have a psychological experience. The medievals don't think you can have a psychological experience of infused prophecy or of the beatific vision. But they think you can talk about the fact that like the saints see God face to face without experiencing it psychologically. Mm -hmm. And that Christ has some kind of intuitive, immediate awareness of his Father that stabilizes him intellectually in the face of his... Uh... Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I mean, I, I do think it's worth noting that the New Testament is remarkably chaste in its um, assural of any experiential talk with respect to Jesus. We get lots of stuff about what he says and what he does, but nothing at all, almost, about 
what it's like to be him to be him. And I also do think, though you might disagree about this, that the beatific vision language is, at least after the 14th century or so, deeply articulated with an experiential content. That is to say, it does imply, on at first blush, and often a second or third reading, something about what it seems like to those who have it to have it. Yeah, well, of course, now I can just say that nothing after the 14th well, okay, century could right. be trusted, you know, completely. So thank you for talking about the dangers of creeping Cartesian subjectivism yes. that come in after the fall. But you should talk about the language then. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, well, sometimes I call it immediate vision. That's the yeah. language of the catechism. Okay. Uh, okay. I mean, if, I, if it was just like I had to choose between a metaphysics, of the, I mean, like thinking about the hypostatic union, the atonement, and the resurrection, versus a theology, the, the consciousness of Christology, it wouldn't be a choice. I would obviously choose the former. I just think you need to talk about something about the, ex the extraordinary content of Jesus' human knowledge as it plays a role in his mission. And we only see it through shards. But he does know a lot about the people who come up to him in the middle of the mission. And he talks about their faith. He makes judgments about them, which we couldn't make about other people because we don't have that degree of insight about what's going on in them. So there's something there we have to be able to... He knows he's unique. You know, there's something there in terms of his knowledge. Yeah. I don't know if we want to say on this. No, you do whatever you're interested in. So, what about the language or of Christ's prayer for us that we would be one as He and the Father yeah. are one? Um, I mean, in the very least, that indicates some level of awareness of unity. Um, right. That's in John, of course, a lot of exegetes would say that that's a post-Paschal theologumenon of the early church. I don't hold that. I think, there's, I think we can hold in a historically responsible way that there's in the Joannine material pre-Paschal historical teaching of Christ, although it has been interpreted in some way by the theologian, uh, the, the evangelist. But, yeah, I mean, I'm, so I'm, I'm willing to, like, just for the sake of argument, treat that as ipsissima verba. Fine. You don't have to obey them. They want us to think critically. <laughs> In that, even if I'm not self-reflective most of the time about what it means for me to be me, I take for granted that whatever it means for me to be me is that is, is not me being you. But that's just, that's just what we take for granted, even if we're not in a sort of act of self-reflection. I mean, I think these are immensely difficult questions. I don't think there's any straightforward thing to say. I think that very often, perhaps always, people act in such a way that a thoughtful observer of their action would say all kinds of things about what's implicit in their action, like that. You act as though you're not me, I act as though I'm not you. But of course, nothing follows from that about what the person in question might say about what's implicit in their action. Nothing at all, because people are often either confused or dumb or not thoughtful or just 
out to lunch in some way or another. So we need all kinds of distinctions, all kinds. We need the capacity to give an account of what one is doing, what, then a third person account of what one is doing and its implications. These are all different things. So I don't want to go any, I don't want to go any distance at all along the route of saying, because somebody's action logically implies that P, therefore they believe that P. That can't possibly be right. And no variant of it can possibly be right. And so we just don't need to even go there. What we can do is think about those things and offer an account of them, which is largely what this book, I think, is doing. But, but anything else is just... I have I have a I have a, a different comment, but I mean on the same question, it's sort of adjacent. Uh, it is interesting, you know, that the Fourth Lateran Council, uh, in, right, took place, you know, right uh, before the life of Aquinas. It, it condemns the idea of Joachim of Fiore uh, that the that that statement that you quoted should be interpreted only to. A, to denote that there's a kind of absolute uniformity between the unity that believers achieve by virtue of grace and the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when it, he says that we may all be one, that they may be one as we are one, that's actually the original context in which the, the notion of the analogia intus was elaborated in the notion that there's an analogy between God and creatures. It was in a properly dogmatic theological context in saying that the Though we are similar to the Trinity in the communion of the life of the church, there's a yet greater dissimilarity. The unity we achieve in grace is not a unity of substance or a unity of essence, of being literally the same in one being, as is the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so uh, the, there is a actually incredible amount of uh, medieval reflection on how to think about the unity that the church lives out in the wake of Christ and in the grace of Christ being somehow like the Trinitarian communion, but in also other ways very unlike the Trinitarian communion. Which goes some way towards saying, you know, what would it be like for Jesus as man to be aware of being ontologically one with the Father, I and the Father are one. Well, we, we can say that he seems to know he's one with the Father, but saying how it feels or what it's like to be one with the Father is something that's very dissimilar and very unlike our, um, our experiences. There's a, there is a certain way in which Christ is always in his human knowledge, even though he's human like us, he's also very transcendent. And there, there's a natural analog to that, and that we are often very different from one another in our own, you know, there's a kind of analogical gap between what another thinks and I think often in the sense that they're like and unlike me. Uh, yeah. Well, you just touched on that part of my question, which is um, the ecclesiological implications mm -hmm. of um, a metaphysical slash ontological yeah. understanding of Christology or mm -hmm. Christology. Could you say more? I mean, how deep is the analogical gap? Okay, so let me just answer the first part of that uh, by saying that I think the most helpful treatment of the mystery of the church written in the 20th century that engages with the deeper kind of uh, metaphysical or ontological questions is the multi-volume French work of uh, Cardinal, the Swiss Cardinal Charles Journet in, called The Church of the Incarnate Word, or L'Eglise du Verbe Incarnate. Only the first volume, alas, was translated into English. Uh, the second volume of that work, 
which in the older edition is one massive volume and now has been reprinted as two uh, volumes in French, is just uh, an immense speculative undertaking of trying to think about the mystery of the church uh, with immense historical, historical learning, but also looking at what the structure of the church is. What is it for the church to be enlivened by the Holy Spirit? He talks about the uncreated soul, the spirit as the uncreated soul of the, of the church, which is a phrase that influenced Yves Congar. Jornet had a huge influence on Congar, actually. And uh, then he talks about the created soul, meaning the grace that animates and unites the life of the church, the graces of faith, hope, and charity, and how life in Christ uh, takes place in, in all believers in some kind of essentially identical way, insofar as all live in Christ. Uh, he has a, an immense reflection on the, the life of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the church. So it's a, it's a masterpiece work that's pretty much unstudied, I think, in the contemporary theological guild, although there are some people in Rome who do work on him regularly. Um, um, you know, a short answer to your question is to say, I, I see, I don't like, I, to be very honest, I don't really like the idea that we should reduce human beings, well, that, we, that in light of Aquinas' Trinitarian theology, we should think about human beings as subsistent relations. This is an attack you find in Balthazar and, and in Ratzinger. I have a lot of hesitation about it because I don't think it safeguards the distance or the differentiation between creaturely unity and grace and the unity of the per person's Holy Spirit. We are not substantially uh, identical in the communion of grace. And so part of the challenge of being in the communion of grace with one another in the church is the substantial dis uh, distance, our differences we have. And so our communion is more in the order of... Um, voluntary love and union in the truth and union in hope. It's in faith, hope, and charity, in the intellect and the will that we live a common life, enjoy a common life, and enjoy one another in common life as friends of God and friends of one another in charity. But we don't become one in being, nor will we become the one being who is Christ in the sense that we would become the incarnate word. I think that those are pretty problematic ideas. So. The Trinity is a mystery of unity that is inachievable for human beings, but that's okay because our calling is to be united with that mystery and to enjoy God and to enjoy life with one another in God. And so the creativity of the Trinity working in us looks differently than the mystery of the Trinity in itself, and that's okay that God's created something different than himself, and we can rejoice in that. We don't need to, we don't need to try to crush the creation into a mold where it has to look just like God God didn't think to do that, so you know, we can imitate him by acknowledging that creatures, the divinization of creatures takes on a different, it looks different than, what, than the mystery of God in himself. Yes, sir. How did you treat a prophet, a priest, and a king as Christological motifs in terms of how those motifs Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so the question is how did I treat the motifs of prophet, priest, and king, which are thematically identified as prominent biblical motifs by John Calvin? and which allow you to see the continuity between Christ and Israel. Well, the truth of the answer, the truth of the matter is I didn't uh, use those tropes very uh, prominently in this, in this book. 
And I would say there are foundations or seeds here to think deeply about Christ as prophet or archetype of all prophets and Christ's priesthood. There's definitely stuff here that, that lays the seeds for thinking about his, his sacrificial priesthood. Now, that being said, I can defend myself by segue by saying that since I wrote this book, I've completed another one that's coming out in uh, April or May. It's uh, the Brazos uh, Theological Commentary series that both you and, and Paul have written in. Uh, and I was offered the opportunity to write on Exodus. And so I spend a, an immense time in that book, which is um, in its final stage of proving and coming out soon, uh, thinking about what it means to say that the, the mystery of Israel foreshadows and begins to instantiate that fulfillment which takes place in Jesus as uh, priest, prophet, and king. And there it doesn't appear, it's not articulated kind of architecturally as a thematic, it arise, I, I follow the text. So where the text begins to talk about Moses as prophet or Moses as governor, uh, or uh, sacrifice in the, the, uh, the priesthood of Aaron and the, and the, and the Levites, then I develop a whole Christology out of that, or how those things have a Christological typology. Yeah, I didn't retreat the ascension here, and part of the reason is I think it's actually a really hard question whether you know the ascension is 40 days in Luke in Acts, it's 40 days later. But that's really the only place, and um, I mean, it seems like in some of the passages of, of um, Paul, the ascension is put right together with the resurrection, which can go back to the Boltmannian point that they, well, okay, it creates a Boltmannian question, you might say. If Paul thinks of the resurrection as the immediate exaltation of Christ, and therefore the ascension of Christ above all uh, created entities, this is in part because of the exaltation language of the Psalms, which is messianic exaltation language, which is now being reinterpreted in light of the resurrection and you know, projected onto Christ. So, is the ascension a creation in the first stages of uh, basically is Hebrew psalmody? Uh, you have an empty tomb, you, you take out some Hebrew psalmody about exaltation and sitting on the right hand of God, and then little by little Luke gets creative and creates apparitions that happen later. I mean, that would be a kind of Boltmannian genealogy, uh, which would be a genealogy of suspicion and skepticism. Um, well, I don't, you might not be surprised to know, I don't really think that's what happened. But there is a complication there about like why uh, some of the authors sort of see exalt, resurrection and exaltation happening together and others later. So that's a big um, theological textual question. There's also the ascensions related to final judgment. Because ascension, if it's something, is it something ontologically different? There's a question of the apparition. Did the apparition happen 40 days later? I think that a very strong defense can be given of that, that there was a final apparition. That that seems to, there's some ways of arguing that that's more than some kind of textual motif, that Christ did finally appear to them at the end in some closure of saying, the, now is the time of the church, I will send the Holy Spirit. Okay. Then you've got a question whether the, that, there's an ontological change in the resurrected Christ when the ascension apparition happens, uh, which I'm not as sold on. I mean, some people think there is a change in him. I don't. I think that that's a pedagogical apparition more than an ontological change in the resurrected Christ. So I don't think that you necessarily have to say that Christ changes after the 40 days differently than he did Easter night, which goes to those other sets of sayings that he's immediately resurrected, exalted. I think there's a way in which ontologically it all happens Easter night 
but the pedagogy of the apparitions takes place over 40 days. And then you've got a question about how the, the, uh, the ascension is a precursor to, uh, well, you've got to think of how, how it's a precursor to the time of the church in which Christ reigns and governs the world through the mystery of the apostolic church, which you see in Acts, where they're all being, they're witnessing, they're working miracles, but they're also being killed in Christ. You know, Christ is governing all things in the lives of Peter, Paul, Stephen, and so forth. And then you've got a question about how this is an anticipation of final judgment. These are all massive issues. So I think the, the ascension was just such a big question, I just decided to table it. I would really like to do something else on Christology later and be able to have the time to come back and treat that kind of question. What's the best thing you know on the ascension in recent theology? Well, Doug Farrow has written yeah, an important no book doubt, on right. it. Um, there's, yeah, so that's, that's an obvious place to go. I think there's also, um, you know, I'm getting the age where you forget names, but the, the, the um, or at least the age at which my mother started to and I'm starting to forget names. The uh, Dominican who taught for years New Testament at the Ecole Biblique, who, huh? So which one? Greg Tater. No, it's before. Um, Anyway, there's a new, there's famous New Testament professor who helped with the Jerusalem Bible. It's not Boismard, um, who wrote a number of articles on New Testament Christology. He's got a fantastic essay on the Ascension, best essay I've read on the Ascension. Okay. And I'm just blanking on the name. I could look it up. Thanks. Yeah, I don't want to keep people hold people hostage oh, yeah. here. So at some point, we should, people should feel free they can get up and go. But we will maybe terminate soon. And but yes, let's take this sure. maybe as the yeah. last question. Um, so this is a let me read a, a snippet of text from I think this is from the chapter on the descent uh, to the dead. I thought of this last night. Um, you made a comment in passing about the, the irreversibility of damnation, both for angels and also for human beings. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the way that and so the uh, you bring this up in the, the chapter on the descent to the dead. You say this: a human being must choose in relation to the supernatural prior to death. The reason is structural or metaphysical. The human soul learns and reasons and dependence on sensible phantasms received from the bodily senses and is made for this manner of learning. Once the spiritual soul is separated from the body, it does not cease to exist, but it is, but it is incapable of further free self-determination. And of course, there's a, there's a parallel set of reasons Aquinas has for the irreversibility of uh, angelic damnation, we still understand. So angels don't have, they don't reason discursively, they don't have bodies. No, so but they make one big decision. One act of well, they can, they, they have such immense understanding of their own, they have such brilliance of, of transparent intuition that when they deploy, uh, when they deploy the potency of their soul, it's like an irremediable fundamental act. Right. Fundamental option theory is true for angels. Okay. So the um, sorry, question is, uh, well, I want one more frame of comment for the question. So it seems like for Aquinas, and, and I suspect also for you, that this is a, so this is a, a philosophical position. I mean, it's a, it's, yeah. it's derived from, it's funded by yeah, yeah, is there a Aristotelianism, yeah, metaphysics, right? Um, so the, my question is, for you, how do you understand that Aristotelian anthropology, Aristotelian metaphysics, to be sort of nested in or or related to? Uh, more properly theological claims? Because this is, I mean, it swings a big bat theologically, though, for Aquinas, and then explains why no angel can be saved, right, which is huge. Well, no angel who's already decided against yeah, God. Yeah, exactly, right. Uh, no, no, no demon could be saved. Uh, and it also, if you, if, 
you know, five of the line of thought human beings explains why. Yeah, there's not there's not another life coming after death yeah. in which you think about it some more. Right. So, uh, so how? So someone like uh, Nissa very clearly doesn't. Think yeah, right. You're making progress, and Scotus is more important because yeah. Scotus thinks that God could, in principle. Uh, extend it indefinitely, or you know, but he just says, God says it's time's up. Okay, yeah. I, I, I make the rules, yeah. time's up. At least that's why I understand it. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> so I mean, voluntarism, right? I mean, you know, God, God, it's God's world, God's will, and you have a certain amount of time to choose, and now time's over. As where for Aquinas, the, pro, the, pro, the thing is that the will is nested to answer your question. For Aquinas, this is such a Dominican thing to say. Uh, against Scotists, you know, who we never read sufficiently to criticize, but anyway, I try to read some Scotus, so. Uh, the will is nested in nature. Right? So the free determinate act of the angel or the man is, on, is based on the kind of thing that we are. We are rational animals. And so animality, because our cho choosing and loving freely is absolutely essential to what it is to be human. But choosing and loving freely as a human being means also choosing and loving freely as an animal. And we do that through, in and through, the sensate knowledge and the, that we gain, the, gain, the knowledge we gain, the intellectual knowledge we gain through our sensate life. And so the soul has its time of choosing and of making fundamental choices for and against Christ, for and against grace, with or against God, with or in indifference to God, in the life of the body. And the angel has its freedom and knowledge within the context of the angelic avum, which is the self-deployment of what it is to be a pure spirit. Now, that's hard to think about, but we can just very, uh, you know, delicately think about some analogies for what it is for pure spiritual life of angels. And the thing is that they don't undergo temporal sensate development as animals. And so there's a way in which they... Now, so what Aquinas is thinking here is it's not really just that God drops the clock on men and angels and says, it's over for you now. It's that in creating any finite creature whatsoever of a spiritual nature, whether it's angelic pure spirits or embodied uh, rational animals, God has committed to create natures capable by the potency of the will from defecting from the good. That just goes with creating those natures. That means they can freely choose to love or freely choose not to love in all kinds of ways. And there are certain forms of irremediability to this cho choice-making because of the way that freedom is engaged in those kinds of, in those natural kinds. And it, so, you know, this is obviously a very deep metaphysical theory of both men and angels, but where it ties into dogma is that it gives you an image of God who is acting not simply by, you know, kind of arbitrary measure or even just, a, even in a, in a kind of rigor of justice, a good justice maybe even, but one that doesn't, that is just someone hidden from us in an indeterminate way in the divine will, it's that God's wisdom tracks onto our natures, or our natures are indications of God's wisdom in us as it's expressed in our, in our the way we, are, we learn to be freely choosing desirers as men and angels. And that this has its eschatological consequences. Um, so, I mean, I think for Aquinas, it's very important for the innocence of God. That God, once he commits to create spiritual natures, creates the kinds of things that can freely turn away from him, and that that's going to follow along certain lines, if, it, if, if indeed that occurs, that follows, that, that's in keeping with the kinds of natures those things have. But the, the other side of that is, by creating them, by, you might say, taking the risk of creation, God has given them the possibility of beatitude. So with the great possibility of salvific beatitude comes the great risk of defection from the good. 
probably we should bring the formal proceedings to a close. Um, I'd like to say what a pure pleasure it is to have you here and see theology actually done. Um, it's rare, even in divinity schools, to see people actually thinking about the Lord and having things to say. So thank you for that. It's mm-hmm. wonderful. Thanks. It's truly wonderful. That's the best compliment you can give a Catholic priest, so thank you so much. <laughs> okay. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you.